You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. Today on the show, we are joined by Rutger Brugman. Rutger is an author and historian. Rutger's first book, Utopia for Realists, was a bestseller that was translated into more than 32 languages. And now Rutger has released his latest book, which is also a bestseller, Humankind, A Hopeful History, which is in stores now. You may know Rutger from going viral multiple times. First, he took on billionaires at Davos and raised the issues of raising taxes for the 1%. Then, he went toe-to-toe with Tucker Carlson on Fox News, and more recently, he published his findings of when he actually found a real-life Lord of the Flies story. In this episode, we ponder the question of, are humans fundamentally good or evil? In this episode, we discuss things like Rutger's view on human nature, why soldiers return back from war with PTSD, the evolutionary basis of why deep down, we're actually pretty decent. What happened when Rutger discovered the real-life Lord of the Flies? Why we should be asking more from institutions unless out of people? Is it a case of survival of the friendliest? How does power corrupt human nature? How can we actually be pretty decent? But yet, terrible things have happened through human history. We've had wars, the Holocaust, ethnic cleansing, all these other things. So guys, if you get value from our work, please subscribe and leave us a five-star iTunes review as this really, really does help us to grow the show. There are links below to a number of different things which we can offer you as well on top of this podcast, namely our newsletter. And don't forget, our video interview of this is also on our YouTube channel. There's a link below for you guys to subscribe. This is an absolutely awesome episode with Rutger, and I hope you enjoy this episode with the anarchist, Rutger Brugman. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. So let me start off by commending you because I thought that Humankind was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I suppose it is a, I think I read that it's now a Sunday Times number one bestseller. So huge. Number two. Oh, number <laughs> two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my, my, my apologies. <laughs> hopefully we got the number one after this episode. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> so I loved reading it. And I think the war I particularly enjoyed most about it was that it really challenges this stereotypical, lazy, cynical view of human nature. Um, so I guess let's just kick her off there. I mean, 
what is the point about human nature that you were trying to convey in this awesome book? Well, humankind has a very, very simple but quite radical message. So the short summary would be that most people deep down are pretty decent. Now, um, that sounds quite simple, but you actually need more than 500 pages to, <laughs> if you want to try and convince readers. Because for so long, we've been telling ourselves such cynical stories. You know, the notion that people deep down are actually just selfish or evil or that, you know, if you strip away the thin layer of civilization, that we're actually savages. Uh, that goes back very deep in, in Western culture and Western history. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks and you find it within religion, you know, Orthodox Christianity, the notion that we're all just sinners or you read the enlightenment philosophers of the 17th and 18th century, or you think about, you know, how we've organized our capitalist economy again and again, the idea that people are just selfish turns out to be really powerful uh, and influential. And I think it's wrong. Mm. It's interesting because I suppose when I was digging into this and I see the things which you do personally, taking on billionaires at Davos, I mean, winding up Tucker Carlson, <laughs> you know, all these crazy things. I mean, in Utopia for Realist, you, you made the case of a universal basic income for everyone. Mm -hmm. But I suppose when you think about this idea of trying to convince people that deep down we're actually pretty good, perhaps this mm -hmm. could be your biggest challenge yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I wanted to write this book because of my experience talking about universal basic income and, and Utopia for Realists. Um, because Utopia for Realists was a book that I published in 2014. Back then, it's interesting, UBI was a completely forgotten idea back then. It was seen as very marginal and unrealistic. Now it has really moved into, main, into the mainstream. So in Europe, more than 70% of people are in favor of UBI, also a majority in the US, according to a recent poll. Now that was unimaginable just six, seven years ago. Um, but what I discovered is that the main objection people have against basic income is, is not really scientific in nature. It's not like that they're going to point to this study or that study and say, hey, it actually doesn't work. No, what they're saying is, yeah, but what about human nature? Aren't people just selfish? Aren't we just fundamentally lazy? And isn't that the reason why you can't really scale this up? Um, that's the reason why I wanted to write this book because I realized that so many of the ideas that I was excited about, and not only universal basic income, but also other ideas, like having a genuine participatory citizens democracy, um, or you know, coming together and actually doing something radical about you know, a great challenge like climate change. Um, all of these things rely on a more hopeful view of who we are as a species. Uh, if you actually want to change the world, you, you, I mean, you don't have to believe that humans are angels, because clearly we're not, but you do need some faith. And uh, yeah, that's what this book is about. I love it. And isn't it interesting how the, that was the main objection you got of, oh, I mean, I would go and build the next Apple or Google, but those mm -hmm. people, I mean, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they would waste it. And yeah. I think that was an amazing reflection that I got from the book in the sense that I'm not sure where it's been conditioned into me, but I sort of had the thing of, oh, I need, you know, guard dogs around my house and all these CCTV mm -hmm. cameras. When actually when I sort of, you know, use principles from say cognitive behavioral therapy and I start going, okay, like what examples do I have to back that up? And actually mm -hmm. there's very few. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I mean, how much 
Um, I mean, is the news playing a factor in this at all? Hmm. Absolutely. So this is obviously the big question. If human beings are really so nice and warm and friendly, <laughs> and this is indeed what biologists have been arguing in the past couple of years, they really say that our secret superpower as a species is that we've evolved to be friendly and to work together. Survival of the friendliest is their terminology. Now, if that is true, then why don't we really think that? Why are we so often suspicious of other people? And, you know, I think you can write a library full of books about that. I sort of have, I think, four reasons for that. <laughs> so the first one is the one you already mentioned, is really our, our sources of information, our system of information, which is, you know, mainly the news. I mean, we know our friends and our families and our coworkers, but when we think about those other people far away, we have to rely on journalism, on the news. And the news is mostly about things that go wrong, about exceptions, about corruption, violence, terrorism. So if you hear about all these exceptions all the time, then at the end of the day, you'll have a very bleak view of humanity. There's a term for this actually in psychology. So psychologists talk, uh, talk about mean world syndrome, something that you get from following too much of the news. So that's one reason. Uh, the other reasons are, uh, you know, the, the idea that we're selfish is just deeply embedded in our culture. I think it's a very Western idea as well. As I said, it goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks. Um, third reason could be that it's in the interest of those in power. Um, because cynicism is a great legitimization of hierarchy. If people do not really trust each other, then they, they need someone to keep them in check, right? They need some president or a CEO or a monarch or a king, you know? Um, so uh, that's, I think, the reason why throughout history, very often those at the top have advocated a more cynical view of human nature. And the last reason is just that it's within ourselves. Again, psychologists have a term for this. They talk about negativity bias, is that we tend to focus more on the negative than on the positive. And there's probably some evolutionary reason for this. Uh, you know, if you're a hunter-gatherer in the Ice Age, it probably helps you to survive, to be afraid. Uh, well, you'd rather be afraid once too often than not afraid at a very crucial moment and then you die, right? <laughs> so um, there's probably some evolutionary reason for that. But nowadays, we're being bombarded by all kinds of horrible things, you know? I mean, what is the question that the news asks every day? It is, what is the most horrible thing that happened in the world today? And we want everyone to know about it. <laughs> That's basically the, the question that many journalists wake up with. And I don't think it's very healthy for us. There's so much I want to get into, but they're particularly about the civilization and that thin veneer. Um, mm -hmm. But before I delve in further, when I was looking into human nature. I mean, I had Robert Green on the show here. I think mm -hmm. that he sort of sports, uh, uh, well, he's definitely sports a more cynical view of human nature than yourself. Um, I wonder, have there been any, prior to yours, any historians, philosophers, psychologists that have throughout history have sported a similar sort of view to yours? Hmm. That's a, that's a great question. So I would, point out two things here. Uh, the first is that my view of human nature is basically the anarchist's view of human nature. So of all the great ideologies, anarchism has obviously been the least successful. Uh, anarchists believe that most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. I think that's a pretty perfect summary of the state of psychological science. I mean, we have extraordinary amount of evidence that indeed most people are pretty decent, that we are pro-social, that we've evolved to work together, to cooperate, that we have the unique ability to blush, for example. 
but there's also a huge amount of evidence that power is a dangerous drug. That indeed, once you get uh, strong hierarchies, um, once people you sort of get too much of this drug that we call power, it sort of damages the brain. Uh, we now know from neurology that if you put powerful people in a brain scanner, then the regions that are involved uh, with feelings of empathy, well, they don't really light up anymore. So uh, what's interesting about the anarchists is that I think they're 100% correct, but they're not really good at building institutions because they don't really like building institutions. I mean, they're anarchists, but that's really problematic because people are shaped by institutions. They're shaped by the schools they go to, their governments, how we organize our democracies, etc. So you could argue that uh, the second half of my book, which is all about implementing this view of human nature, is sort of trying to take this anarchistic view of human nature and then to see what it can mean in practice. Because what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. Uh, but self-help doesn't really change the world. You know, real change really starts with sort of building different structures. So uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of the idea that I'm toying with there in the second half of the book. Now the second observation here is, and someone should do more research on this, but I've, I've found it quite interesting that this perspective of human nature that is more hopeful and more positive is often being advocated by women. Um, it's, it, is, it is interesting that when we've talked about human nature for so long, we've actually meant male nature and then specifically young guys, right? Very often when philosophers talk about human nature, for example, Thomas Hobbes start talking about a war of all against all in prehistory. I mean, he's not talking about children or women or the elderly, right? He's talking about a quite small subset of humanity. I don't know, around 20%. <laughs> now, uh, as, as academia has become more diverse, I think um, that sort of people have gone into uh, or looked at new research questions. And this is uh, really at the heart of the, of the most exciting theory of biology nowadays, which is the theory of self-domestication. I already mentioned it um, just a while ago when I talked about the notion of survival of the friendliest. Now, uh, that is basically what's ha what has happened to us, is that over the centuries and millennia, because women had a preference for friendlier guys, the friendlier guys had more kids, and so had a bigger chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And that meant, has meant that we've basically feminized. Uh, you know, compared to Neanderthals, we're sort of, I call homo puppy. We, we look relatively puppyish, also if you compare the skeletons. Um, now, don't tell this to all the Jordan Peterson fans out there because it may come as a big shock that we've actually become sissies and that this is, <laughs> this is actually the success of our species is that we're such, so, such puppyish creatures. But that could, be, that could be a reason why it has been overlooked for so long because we simply lacked sort of the, the female perspective. I find that so interesting, that concept of survival of the friendliest and it makes me think that if that was a key for so long and yet we've got leaders like donald trump and the the president in brazil mm -hmm. it makes me think where are we at in our evolution now yeah 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 yeah. you know you could say that in our evolution we've had different eras at one point i had the idea of of calling it the bonobo eras and the chimpanzee eras so if you go back, say, four or 500,000 years, I think humans were more like chimpanzees with these uh, hierarchies that were, uh, where it was important if you wanted to get out on top to be Machiavellian, to be powerful, also to be muscular, etc. And that's still what you see in chimpanzee societies today. So chimpanzees are quite violent. 
you know, they often rape uh, females in their societies. I'm not saying they don't have feelings of empathy or altruism whatsoever, but, you know, they're a little bit more uh, unfriendly. Now, if you look at bonobos, which are also genetically very similar to us, you know, both bonobos and chimpanzees share 99% of their DNA with us. Uh, bonobos are the complete opposite. So bonobos are the most peaceful creatures you can find on earth. You know, if there is a group of bonobos that meets another group of bonobos, it usually ends up not in a war, but in an orgy. You know, they start having sex with each other. That's sort of, uh, yeah, penetration is a handshake for them. <laughs> so uh, um, the question is, are we more like the bonobos or more like the chimpanzees? Now, I think that in different periods of our history, we were more like uh, one and sometimes more, uh, more like the other. So we started out more like chimpanzees, but then when we self-domesticated, because in the Ice Age, there was really an evolutionary pressure for, for friendship, basically. Friends helped you to survive. I mean, imagine Donald Trump in prehistory. He wouldn't have survived for long because people wouldn't have liked him. He would have been cast out by the group and he would have died alone. So that was not advantageous. Um, so there was this evolutionary pressure for, for friendship and we, we domesticated. And I mean, there, there's so much evidence for this now. As I said, you can really see it within our own bodies today. Um, one of the most interesting pieces of evidence, I think, is that humans have the unique ability to blush. We are the only species in the whole animal kingdom, apart from some parrots maybe, but that's, there's limited evidence so far. But, you know, it's really quite a unique ability that we blush, that we involuntarily give away our feelings, basically in order to establish trust. Now, that's not very Machiavellian. If you look at chimpanzees again, chimpanzees have these uh, very different faces, you know, much less expressive than we have. Now, the question is, what era are we in now? And you could argue that from the moment we settled down 10,000 years ago, and we started living in villages and cities, that the chimpanzee came back. I mean, we uh, can really see in the archaeological record that settling down and inventing agriculture was a huge, huge mistake. Basically, everything went wrong then. Our health deteriorated, our diet deteriorated, uh, the age of warfare began, we got all these hierarchies, patriarchy, you name it. And um, since then, I think the selection pressure has gone a little bit in the other way. I mean, it's still a short time, so it's, it's, it's hard to say what sort of the long-term consequences will be, because 10,000 years, I mean, that's, that's really nothing in, in evolutionary history. Um, but there's some evidence that since then, sort of the machos have done better. Uh, machos and sort of what you can call survival of the shameless, that works much better in a hierarchical society. And that is obviously what we see in some of our political systems. I mean, where the most shameless people, you know, the Bolsonaros and the Trumps and the Boris Johnsons, the people who you can't really imagine blushing, you know, they're doing much better. While sort of the feminized um, politicians, well, some of them are doing well. I mean, uh, you can talk about Justin Trudeau or, um, uh, or like, like the actual women, like Jacinda Ardern or Angela Merkel. Um, so that is, I guess, it's the big tension that is going on. And uh, maybe the que big question of, for our future will be, are we going to be more like the chimpanzee or more like the bonobo? So, so, so interesting. I love that concept of that we were survival the friendliest and now we've moved to survival of the Machiavellian or survival yeah. of the shameless. And, and like you, I really hope we, we go back the other way. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> so I would love to to pick up on that sort of the evolutionary aspects of it, mm-hmm. because what I found so interesting in the book was that you give these great examples. And one of them, which really stuck out in my mind, was that you talked about um, war and you talked about soldiers, you know, being reluctant mm-hmm. to kill people with bayonets. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the, the one which hit me and I hadn't really conceptualized this before was you made this case of if we were destined to be savages evolutionarily and we were destined to kill each other, then we wouldn't have things like PTSD and depression, you know, soldiers coming mm-hmm. home with depression and whatnot. So I yeah. wonder if you could talk about those examples which you gave that back up this sort of humankind argument from war, because I thought these were amazing. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, people do not get traumatized if they eat food. You know, they don't get traumatized if they go to McDonald's or when they have sex. Well, well, sex sometimes if it's involuntarily, but mostly, I mean, we enjoy sex because it's good for us. And there's a reason we like it because there's probably an evolutionary advantage, right? If we don't have sex, then we die out as a species. So you don't need, need a PhD to understand that. Now, the strange thing about violence is that we often become traumatized by it. Indeed, especially killing someone else. If you have a soldier, you draft that soldier, send them into a war, and then often they come back with PTSD. Now, that's strange, isn't it? Because we've been taught for a very long time, and this is still the message of many Hollywood movies and series like Game of Thrones, and you name it. Uh, we've been taught that violence is easy. I mean, we're supposed to be these savages who in certain situations when the veneer of our civilization breaks down that, you know, that we should just shoot to kill and that we intuitively understand what to do. But actually very much the opposite happens. So there's indeed extraordinary evidence that most soldiers in most wars, especially if, they, if they've not been properly trained and conditioned. Uh, so for example, during the first world war and the second world war that where they had just had to work with, you know, average drafted soldiers who had received maybe six, seven weeks of training, which is mostly technical training, you know, how to load a gun, how to fire it. Well, many of those soldiers, actually the majority of them, did not fire their guns. They couldn't do it, Um, which is really strange. Again, it makes you question everything, basically, about the psychology of violence. Uh, The first one who noticed this was an American historian and um, military man named S.L.A. Marshall. Um, in 1944 and 1945, he traveled with American troops, both in the Pacific and, and in Europe. And he was indeed one of the first ones to discover that many of the soldiers didn't fire their guns. Um, his estimate, which was a rough estimate, it was sort of basically an intuition, that was that only 15 to 25% of soldiers actually did fire their guns. Now, that became a quite controversial finding because the question was, you know, were his statistics really reliable? and Obviously, this really goes against the worldview of some people, but later research really has backed it up. It has become much more mainstream. And the American military took his findings very, very seriously. So because of SLA Marshall and his book, Men Against Fire, which is still obligatory reading uh, in many military academies today, um, because of his finding and his conclusion that Actually, we are not hardwired to be violent and we have a strong inner psychological resistance against violence. They've completely um, changed the training of soldiers. 
So nowadays, if you want to become a soldier, um, you go through this process of conditioning where they let you shoot at targets that are as realistic as possible. So that sort of shooting becomes a Pavlov reaction that you don't really think about it anymore. And that has really uh, succeeded. So we know that in the war in Vietnam and also the Iraq war, many more veterans came back who actually did kill enemy combatants, uh, but they paid a, paid a quite high price for that. So also incidents of PTSD has really gone up since then. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a very different story. What the modern psychology of violence teaches us is that yes, human beings are capable of horrific violence. I mean, in many ways we are the cruelest species in the whole animal kingdom, but we find it quite hard and you actually need to do quite a lot to get people to become violent. You need certain psychological technologies like dehumanization and conditioning and brainwashing. And it also helps if you have the right uh, sort of military technologies like web weaponry, uh, especially increasing the distance really helps. So it's much easier to just push a button and kill a lot of people far away with an artillery device than to let people use their bayonets. Most bayonets throughout history have actually never been used. You know, there's one historian who writes that uh, when two armies approach each other with, with bayonets in hand and they realized, oh God, we really got to do this. Usually what happened is that one of the two armies remembered an urgent appointment elsewhere and, you know, uh, they just got away because it's, for most of us, it's psychologically impossible to really shove a bayonet down someone. So, you know, if you thought Game of Thrones was realistic, apart from the dragons, well, uh, think again. I still, I still enjoyed it, by the way. So it's not, <laughs> it's not a critique of the series. Last season was total crap. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's very strange how we've come to believe all that nonsense. I, I love your distance example. And it makes me think this is why, you know, there are subscription services which will say, oh, you've got to call us if you want to cancel it or why mm. people are sometimes tempted to break up via the text and in person. Mm. And that example you give of the bomb being dropped, it's clear that, that it goes against our human nature, which really makes me think, I mean, where has this, you know, this cynical view come from and you talked about this example of it being used to legitimize power could you go into that in a bit more detail sure um well if people really start trusting each other and they, if they really believe in the good of humanity then a lot of things become possible that were not possible before so you can build and design your society and institutions in a completely different way if you think about schools Nowadays, schools often are all about, well, basically having a little bit of distrust in children, right? We have all these things like homework and hierarchy and classrooms where we basically force the kids to be there for hours a day because otherwise we're afraid that they don't learn anything. Now, if you move to a different view of human nature, you can get rid of all that. In the book, I talk about schools who already do that, you know, abolished homework, abolished this, all this, these hierarchies and just give kids the freedom to follow their own curiosity. And uh, to my own great surprise, um, uh, this actually works. You know, uh, Intrinsic motivation can be a very, very powerful thing. And this is not only true for schools, but it's also true for the workplace. You can build completely different organizations once you adopt a more realistic view of human nature. You can get rid of a lot of management. Management is basically all about distrust. 
because you don't really trust the, that the employees will actually do their job. So then you, yeah, get all these layers of management. Um, I think this is actually one of the tragedies of our modern society and what we call the knowledge economy is that we have, we educate all these people and they go to these very expensive universities funded by taxpayer money, or I don't know, by, by the money of parents. And then, uh, yeah, we, we teach them all this so-called knowledge, which is all about making things more complicated than they have to be. And then we have all these layers of management and consultants and advisors who are necessary to manage all this complexity. Um, yeah, there's one anthropologist, David Graeber, who is, well, it's no coincidence that he's also an anarchist, uh, but he, he calls this bullshit jobs. People who have jobs that don't, are not really necessary. Um, and I think we can get rid of all that because the uh, ironical thing again here is that often these bullshit jobs pay very well. You know, it's from people who are higher at the ladder, uh, but they don't really have any meaning. It's something we discovered during this pandemic as well, by the way. I mean, governments around the globe came up with all these lists of the so-called essential jobs, the essential workers, vital workers. Well, um, there were no hedge fund managers on those lists or, or you know, uh, all these kind of consultants and managers, et cetera. So maybe this crisis is a shifting point where we rethink what's really important. Um, and that will be quite uncomfortable for a lot of people at the top because, yeah, they'll come to realize that they're not as important as they would like to believe. I love it. I love it. And I think I completely agree with you, you know, that it's, it's such a tragedy that there are so many intelligent, mm. able-minded, curious thinkers doing things like creating Facebook ads. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the greatest tragedies of our time. This huge waste of talent so many smart people who could do great things could get us to mars build flying cars solve climate change cure cancer you name it and what are they doing they're creating algorithms that let us click on ads they're building financial products that only destroy wealth and uh, they're helping billionaires to evade their taxes it's such a tragedy um yeah it's really the greatest tragedy I think of our time, just an extraordinary waste of talent. You know, uh, bankers, for example, I think if you're a banker, you should ask yourself the question, you know, maybe I'm just too smart to be a banker. <laughs> this is a tragedy. You could do, go on and, 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 and do very interesting things and actually contribute to something and you'll be happier as well, I think in the long run. Because this is again, the irony is that many of these people they go with taxpayer funded money to these great universities. Then they, you know, become educated. Then for 20 or 30 years, they do these completely useless jobs. Then they have their midlife crisis. Of course they have one because they've been living completely meaningless lives. And then they quit their job and they paint the rest of their lives. They start painting or something like that, or read books or write novels. And my only question here is why not immediately start writing? novels or paint or whatever you know let's just cut out the crap because it's such a waste i love that i love that so much um so i guess when you write a book like humankind mm. i guess that, that would inevitably um generate questions such as 
um, you know, if, as you say, that deep down humans are pretty decent, hmm. then how can a species go on to do things like the Holocaust or hmm. ethnic cleansing or suicide bombings or, or, you know, pick any tragedy or whatnot? So I wonder mm -hmm. how do you marry those two ideas together? Mm -hmm. Well, this is obviously the big question that hangs over my book. And by definition, the answer has to be complicated and layered. You know, the, the cynical answer to that question would be easy. You know, you can just say, well, why do people commit, you know, all these crimes? Because they're awful. That's why we do it. I mean, then, I mean, basically the cynics have to explain human goodness. That will be the real mystery for them. You know, why would these horrible people still be nice to strangers or something like that? And then they have to explain it in a way to say, well, that's just because they like to feel good about themselves or something like that. But for me, obviously the challenge is how do you explain all this evil in the world? How do we explain that human beings are the only species in the whole animal kingdom who come up with the idea of look, locking up groups of other people and exterminating them. Um, and I think there's not, not a single answer to that. There really needs to be a layered answer. So if you want to stand something like the Holocaust, I mean, libraries full of books have been written about that. And there are so many different pieces of the puzzle, but we can zoom in on a couple of things. So first thing is that genocides are highly moralized, right? They're highly moral undertakings. They're not, uh, like these sadistic things where, where the people who perpetrate them say, well, we just enjoy violence. We just like killing random groups of people. That's never the case. It's always, they make, they make the case that this group is really evil and that they want to improve the world and protect their own people from that evil group who's really an infection, etc. That's always how it goes. And sometimes even, or actually quite often, um, the people who perpetrate the genocide um, sort of admit that it's really hard for them. So there's this, there's this really shocking speech that Himmler once gave, you know, the leader of the SS, um, where he said to, you know, this at the time that was a secret speech, obviously, but we now know about that. And he said to his, um, uh, basically the people who are under his command, that it was going to be really hard and it was almost inhuman what they were doing, but it was still the right thing. So they really had to convince themselves with this crazy ideology that they were actually improving the world. Um, that is, I think, the dark truth at the heart of my book, that even though human beings have evolved to be friendly, we quite often do the most horrible things in the name of friendliness and of comradeship and of loyalty. Uh, and then you can get this in-group, out-group dynamic where we really love our own group and the out group, well, that's the strangers far away, or we even dehumanize them and think of, uh, think of them as cockroaches or, you know, uh, a plague. And then you can do things that you can normally never do uh, with human beings that are, that are really hard to do. Uh, still, it's, it's, uh, it's traumatizing. So this is one of the reasons that the uh, Nazis came up with a system of gas chambers, because just shooting all these Jews was becoming psychologically too hard for many of the soldiers. Uh, you know, they were developing all kinds of uh, bizarre system, uh, symptoms and breaking down, etc. because it's, you know, human beings are not designed to do something like that. That's why they came up with this horrible system. So none of this is meant to downplay these, these atrocities. I'm just trying to understand them and to, to see how this can happen, how 
a species that has actually evolved to be friendly and to work together on a huge scale can, uh, in very specific circumstances, behave in incredibly horrible and cruel ways. Mm, so interesting. And in the same way, I imagine that if most people had to kill their own pigs rather than, you know, through oh, industrial yeah, yeah. plants, I mean, yeah. the world would probably go out, uh, would probably be extinct of berries very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's true for so many things we do. If we, if we would actually align our behavior with what we believe, <laughs> So, so many things would change. We couldn't consume most of the products we're consuming right now because the clothes we're wearing, you know, what's behind all of that? How much child labor is behind that? How much pollution, how much um, abuse of workers in other countries is behind our clothes? And, and this is especially true, you're absolutely right, when we talk about animals. Um, you could make the case, and Yuval Noah Harari, the historian uh, who's written this fantastic book, Sapiens, Sapiens you know, yeah. and I... I disagree with him on quite a lot of points, but I, I, I really agree where he says that, you know, industrial farming is probably the greatest crime in all of human history because the scale of it, uh, we slaughter, one estimate is that we slaughter around 65 billion animals uh, each year. So what is it? It would take around, I don't know, 30, 40 days to slaughter as many animals as there, as there are humans on the planet and that happens again and again and again and again and again and the more we learn about the you know the consciousness of these animals about their how do you say that uh, about their mental lives mm. the more shocking it becomes because it turns out that they're actually quite smart they have feelings of empathy they mourn for the dead uh, i mean pigs for example it's really shocking Pigs are often smarter than human toddlers of around two years old. If you have a human toddler and let, let, let the toddler compete with the pig on an intelligence test, very often the pigs win. I mean, this is one of the arguments I make at the beginning of the book is that human beings are absolutely unimpressive in intelligence tests. Uh, we're not really smart. We're not very good at arith arithmetic or causal reasoning or something like that. And we often are outperformed by chimpanzees or by pigs. Uh, it's just that we're really good at plagiarism and learning from each other. You know, social learning is really our secret superpower. And that's why we've been able to build cultures and learn from each other. You know, that we actually remember inventions. Now, monkeys do a lot of inventions, but they don't remember them. So they have to invent the wheel over and over and over again. Well, we only had to invent the wheel once or twice or three times maybe, but not that, that often because, you know, they were passed down to generations. So, Yes, and the, for, for the meat lovers and the dairy lovers out there, um, this is uh, troublesome information <laughs> because uh, it, it really becomes hard to enjoy your lunch or your dinner once you have all this knowledge. So, so interesting. And, and I, I want to pick up on something that you said. You, know, you, you make this case that humans are generally decent, mm -hmm. but power corrupts. Mm -hmm. Why? does power corrupt hmm. that is a great question um i think one of the main reasons is that if you think about something like empathy just sort of having the ability to step in someone else's shoes which is 
such an important phenomenon in human societies. There's also evidence for empathy with other animals, so it's not unique. But clearly, we've been hardwired to connect with each other. I already talked about this unique phenomenon of blushing. Uh, I can also talk about our unique eyes. So among primates, we are the only ones who have white around our um, irises, you know, our sclera, uh, our, our white, so we can track each other gazes. Um, with all the other primates, the chimpanzees, the bonobos, they've dark around their eyes. So if you look, if you look at them, you can't really see what they're looking at. Uh, they're a little bit like poker players wearing shades. Uh, and that's obviously not really helpful if you want to trust each other, if you can't even see what, what other people are looking at. Um, so that is really central for human beings is that we've been basically shaped by evolution to connect. Now, once you're at the top, once you're at the top of the pyramid, all of that is not really necessary anymore. You don't really need to understand your servants because who cares? You can just use violence to, to let them do what they want. You know, in normal societies, you need to talk to other people all the time. You need to understand them. You need to, because if you want to sort of live your own life and survive and, you know, have, uh, create meaning, you, you, you need to understand each other all the time. That is, maybe that is even the definition of what work is, you know, uh, trying to get in, into other people's brains. But if you're at the top, you can be lazy. And uh, yeah, I think, I think violence is really the language of the stupid, of those who, who've become disconnected of society, whose Wi-Fi is not working anymore. Um, I guess that's, that, that's what happens. Uh, and and I, I mean, anthropologists have so often pointed this out, is that if you look at a, at a hierarchical system and you really want to understand it, you, you talk not to the leaders, but you talk to those at the bottom. They have a much uh, bigger understanding of how the system, system actually works because they have to understand their own lives, but they also have to understand the, the lives of the leaders, right? If they want to survive. Now, the leaders have to know nothing about those at the bottom. You know, they, they, they're not interested. Who cares? And if someone doesn't behave the way they like, they can just use violence. Um, so I guess that's, that's one of the reasons why, why power corrupts, is that these things that are yeah, so necessary to build a decent society, um, it's not necessary if you uh, have all these privileges. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. I would love to pick up on this article which you went completely viral for on on mm -hmm. uh i believe it was the guardian uh you discovered a real life lord of the flies <laughs> i mean uh, when i was reading this i was like okay <laughs> it's like this is just <laughs> insane so mm -hmm. i wonder could you share this story with us yeah sure so I guess most listeners will have heard of Lord of the Flies or even have read it or basically have been forced to read it while they were in school. Uh, for those who don't know, you know, it's a story of kids being in an air crash uh, and then ending up on this uninhabited island. Um, and they try to build a democracy of sorts, but it doesn't really work out. At the end, at the end of the novel, which is written by William Golding, British author. Uh, at the end of the novel, three kids are dead, and the message is, look, this is just what we're like. This is just what kids are like. If you give them freedom, then they'll behave in a pretty horrible way. Um, and that's the, that's the lesson we taught to millions and millions of kids for decades. Um, now, I wondered, while I was researching this book, whether it has ever happened. 
because that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If we could sort find a real live Lord of the Flies case study, and then, you know, see what the real life Lord of the Flies would look like. Um, now, I'm of course a proper uh, researcher, so I started on Google. <laughs> so just Googling like Lord of the Flies and real life uh, or kids on an island. And the first thing you stumble upon are all these horrid reality shows because, you know, the, these people who work on reality television, they, they have the beasts. Uh, yeah, they always come up with these horrible, crazy ideas. Uh, but then after a while, um, I did actually find one case that supposedly in 1965, 1966, six kids shipwrecked on an island and survived there for 15 months by working together. And then I wondered, you know, maybe these kids are still alive. They would be around 70 years old right now. And the captain who rescued them, uh, maybe he's also still alive. He's an Australian captain called Peter Warner, now 90 years old. Um, so yeah, that's what I spent the next five or six months of my life on tracking these people down. And I found them uh, in Australia. So I traveled to the other side of the globe. I live in the Netherlands uh, myself. And um, uh, yeah, uh, Peter Warner, the captain and his best friend, Mano, who was one of the real life Lord of the Flies kids. Um, they, um, they told me what really happened. And if it, it would have been, if it, this story would be a Hollywood fictional movie, and people would say, ah, oh, that is so unrealistic. That would never happen, you know? But it's, it really happened. The real Lord of the Flies is a story of friendship, of resilience, of working together in very difficult circumstances and surviving. So yeah, it's, it's really been a, the highlight of, of my career so far to, to have been able to actually track these people down. So what actually happened when these people were, were on the island? Well, it's interesting. So uh, a couple of things. They worked together in teams of two, uh, two to be on the lookout for ships, two to tend to the garden, and two um, to cook. Uh, sometimes they ended up in flights, but then what they would do is that one would go to one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a little bit, you know, have a time out, and then come back and say sorry. That happened a couple of times during their stay there. Um, they wanted to stay in shape, so they had their own gym with their sort of own improvised weights. Uh, very curious. Uh, they had their own badminton court. Uh, and yeah, they uh, made a, a sort of a guitar from some of the uh, pieces that of the ship that was wrecked on the island. Um, and so they made a lot of music. Uh, yeah, and they were bored quite often, but still managed to survive. So. When they were rescued uh, after 15 months, well, rescued is maybe not even the right word because they could have lived there for years if they would have wanted to. Uh, but when they were found by this Australian captain, they were in really good shape. Um, actually, one of the boys had fallen down, down a cliff and broken a leg, but they had managed to heal that with traditional medicine. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, in almost every single way, the real Lord of the Flies is the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. Now, I do understand that it's only one story. It's just an anecdote. But if millions of kids have to read this fictional story, then why don't we also tell them about the one time, the one single time that we know of where it really happened? Because that's a completely different story. Yeah, and I think humankind does a great job of giving these different ideas like you're probably decent, 
probably so are other people too. Um, humans are generally pretty good, but power can corrupt. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, I w- at the end of the book, you give these sort of like 10 rules for life, which, mm. you know, I'm sure a publisher had a hand to play in that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I've not been corrupted by my publisher. It was, ac- it was actually a friend of mine who said, look, you've written a sort of a theory of everything. And uh, you need sort of a, a personal ethics with that as well. So it's a theory of of human nature, how we can implement that theory within our society and build different institutions. But then you gotta write a chapter about the personal implications as well, because otherwise the book is simply incomplete. Now, I, I, I wasn't sure about that because I'm not really the guy who's into self-help. You know, uh, I think self-help uh, often doesn't really help because really changing the world starts with building different institutions. And we should, shouldn't overestimate how much difference an individual can make. I think this is sort of what we should do is to expect a little less of individuals and expect a little more of societies and of governments and of institutions. Um, But then again, you know, I I sort of couldn't resist because working on this book for six years changed my own life a little bit as well. You can't help but be influenced by this view of human nature. So that's why I wanted to, you know, just share a couple of rules for uh, for life that I uh, came up with for myself. I, I love it. I love it. So could we delve into some sort of um, some real pragmatic examples here? So mm-hmm. are the um, I th- actually, I think a good question would be um, if I say so myself, I mean, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, leave, I'll leave that to you to decide, but I think of the rules which you give in the 10, obviously we don't have the time to go through 10 mm-hmm. of them, but which one would you like to see most um implicated in society and also which one you know of the ones would give us the highest roi of building a you mm-hmm. know a, a much better society hmm. so i think the most important one but also the most difficult one to actually imply in practice is the first one so that's when in doubt assume the best you know very often we doubt other people's intentions and we start questioning their integrity. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, and I think we should do the opposite. When in doubt, assume the best in other people. And I have three reasons why we should do that. In the first place, um, assuming the best in other people is the more realistic approach because most people are pretty decent. Most people really mean well in the end. So you'll be right most of the time if you assume the best in other people. In the second place, if someone doesn't mean well, if some, someone's simply a jerk or has been nasty to you, uh, then your positive reaction can cause a so-called non-complementary effect. This is a psychological term. So um, it's a very simple principle. It becomes very hard for people to be nasty to you if you're nice to them, right? And it takes a lot of courage and self-control to sort of turn the other cheek and to act in a, uh, you know, to react in a positive and nice way to someone who's nasty to you. But just practice it a couple of times. And at, at some point, it will become very satisfying to you. You know, I've actually, uh, you know, whether it's your neighbor or, or a stranger or, you know, someone at a shop or something like that. So when someone's being nasty to you, respond in a kind way. And once you're getting better at it, you'll, it, it will give you a very satisfied feeling because the results are often pretty extraordinary. Now, um, the th- third reason why we should do that is that even when there are professional con artists at work, you know, some people are just nasty. 
are, and are just irredeemably nasty. You know, we know that a small part of the population is just sadistic or has a psychopathology or something going on. That happens. You know, some people are really uh, asocial. Uh, but then I, I think we should still uh, sort of take that as, how do you say that, collateral damage? Mm -hmm. uh, we should sort of accept that because um, the alternative is, is worse. If you really want to live a life where you're never conned uh, and you're never the victim of some kind of fraudulent scheme or, or something like that, then you have to distrust all people all the time. And that's, that price is, is, a, is simply too high. We can't afford that. So you just have to accept. I think this is really the rational, realistic thing that you'll be conned a couple of times in your life. And that's something to be proud of. It's a good thing. You know, it's a sign that you're psychologically healthy. Um, if you've never been conned, that is worrisome. Then you should really see a therapist because it might mean that your basic attitude to life is not trusting enough. I love that so much, you know, <laughs> and I suppose, you know, like a, a good way to be would be to think back of how many times have I been conned? How many times have I been scammed? Because it probably means you're a trustworthy uh, yeah, 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 person, yeah. And, and it's interesting because people often have the opposite feeling when they're con, they often feel ashamed, right? They're like, Oh, how could I have been so stupid? But the next time you're con, you should say to yourself, Oh, I was so human. And that's nothing to be ashamed for. No, that's a reframe right there. I love yeah. it. So my last question to you today, um, Rutger, before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you, <laughs> would be something which um, I've started asking uh, at the end of all these shows. And that would be simply what makes a life worth living? Hmm. You know, I could sort of give you my own answers to that question. Uh, what makes my life worth living? Please. And they'd be very, They'd be very boring answers, actually. You know, we want to hear them. We want to hear them. So I'm obviously excited about my books and my ideas, etc. But in the end, you know, I would burn all my books if I, you know, if it, uh, if that would be necessary for, you know, preserving my my relationship with my family and my wife, etc. So even though um, I think it's important to sort of um, make a bigger circle you know, and to feel empathy, not only for those who are close to you, but, you know, have a larger circle of compassion. I still think it's important to understand that humans are limited creatures, right? We are. We care most about those who are close to us, to our, about our friends, about our loved ones. And that's fine. That's fine. That's just who we are. As long as we remember that those other people far away are just like us, you know, they have their own friends, they have their own family members that they love. Um, and I guess that's, in the end, what really makes life meaningful. Uh, we're not isolated atoms, but we are part of something bigger. We, we feel meaning, we create meaning when we connect with other people. That's the secret superpower of our species. It's the reason why we conquered the globe, why we built cathedrals and pyramids and spaceships and rockets and you name it. And uh, it's what makes our lives meaningful. I love that answer. I love that answer. Rutger, where can our Freedom Pack family connect with you? And if you've got any closing messages for us? Closing messages? Well, <laughs> uh, stop following the news, read books. Uh, <laughs> and 
yeah, cynicism is out, man, and hope is in. I guess that's, um, that's really one of the central things that I come back to again and again, is that uh, uh, you don't have to be an optimist, you know, because optimism is sort of a form of complacency often, you know, you say, oh, things will turn out to be all right. But it is a moral obligation to be hopeful because hope impels you to act. So uh, that's my final message to your listeners (laughs) and where can these guys connect with you online you on the socials yeah of course i'm on twitter but i don't tweet much (laughs) uh i'm on uh i'm on facebook as well actually but yeah it's best just wait best just to wait for another book that'll probably take four years but uh (laughs) maybe start with humankind first start with humankind and maybe you'll find another uh, real life lord of the flies in the meantime <laughs> yeah well maybe we'll see <laughs> Rutger, this was absolutely incredible we really feel as if you are genuinely doing a great service i mean i know that you know you've certainly sparked up a conversation in my own personal life in my my close circles so i want to pay tribute and my gratitude to you i will make sure that that we you know everything from this conversation today is linked below and once again man thank you so so much for coming on the show it was a real pleasure thanks man well guys that wraps up what was most surely one of my favorite episodes to record for this podcast i thought that there was so much pure gold insight there from rutger and I guess, guys, just the message from that podcast, you were pretty decent. Other people probably are too. So guys, just as a reminder, the video episode of this interview is up on our YouTube channel, as well as our healthy, wealthy, and wise newsletter, which I know you will love, is in the description below. Guys, thank you so much for your time. We will see you on Monday.